We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 again, as we, Lord willing, finish this mini-series on the Lord's, uh, Lord's Prayer. And so I'm going to read verses 11 through 15, and I would encourage you to stand as I read. Matthew chapter 6. Start in verse 11. There you go. Hear the word of the living God. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you engage our weakness to demonstrate your power. We thank you that both in Jesus, your instruction and example in prayer and in the Holy Spirit's help, we are able to pray. That we're able now by Christ and Christ alone to enter into the heavenly throne room with boldness and confidence, not because of ourselves, but our only boast is in the cross of Christ by which the world has been crucified to us and we to the world. And so, Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, Lord, would you speak? God of glory, speak. Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we began to unpack after a little bit of a preamble about uh, how, you know, what, when you pray, Jesus p- presuming prayer, everyone prays because everyone exercises some sort of faith, some sort of commitment to truth and to uh, what we depend on. Where is our security found and the verbiage, the language that you surround that faith with is your form of prayer. So whatever you talk about the most and wherever you're, you're leaning, whether it be a financial, you're trusting in your 401k, which is a terrible idea these, ways, these, these days or, uh, or any day, but especially feels so these days. Or, or maybe it's your family or your job or the stability that we've been given and the freedoms that we've been given in America, that all of those things kind of showcase where our faith is. What are we talking about? What are our hopes and our aspirations? And Jesus admonishes, encourages us to engage God in secrets in prayer, and he attaches promise to it. Not that we would, I mean, he promises elsewhere that we would receive what we ask for. But the biggest treasure that we have in prayer is God himself. Go into your closet, go into your hidden room, go into private and pray in secret. And you'll, there you'll meet your father who is in secret. Your father who is in secret will, will reward you in secret. So, um, and we have this new relationship. And out of a new relationship, God being our father 
we now are able to pray. Last week we unpacked verses 9, 10, and Jesus' prayer, the Lord's prayer, he is instructing us that the, the center, the heartbeat of our prayers ought to be, must be the very glory of God. If God is, right, if we're going to ascribe to God the glory due His name and proclaim to ourselves and to the world that God is most significant, then we should be praying about along those lines first and foremost. That God's glory has to be the center, the heartbeat of our prayer, that God would be glorified, that His will would be done, that His kingdom would come as it is in heaven. And so now we get into... Well, what about us? What about the rest of us? If we've prayed that God's will would be done, that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, how quickly and easily is it to pray, give us this, this day our daily bread? I'm sure many of you or some of you have grown up in churches and traditions where you recite or pray the Lord's Prayer along with each other. And it's easy to come to that moment and say, give us this day our daily bread. And you're thinking somehow, I would, like, I would like something more than bread today. Um, I would, you know, maybe a chicken sandwich or some chips along with my bread. Um, tough crowd. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Terrible jokes abound. Um, but what, why would we ask? Why would we ask, give us this day our daily bread, when there are millions and billions of people who receive their daily bread some more than others, uh, without ever asking the God of the Bible, the living and true God, without ever asking. Why ought we to pray, give us this day our daily bread? Well, it is a tacit understanding. There's a, an, an under, undercover. There's an undercover assumption here. That in order to receive something from God, it is actually an extension of God's grace in a fallen world. In order to receive any good thing from God, it is God giving something good to those who do not deserve it. So even whatever you had for breakfast this morning, some people are breakfast people. If you're, if you're one of my sons, minus Chapman, because he doesn't have teeth yet, well, I'm sure his day will come. Uh, but if you're, if you're James Allen or Henry, uh, you want sausage. Like, legit, every meal, especially James Allen. Sauce, and he's, t- he's two, so you get this cute sausage. So, every meal, you want, I gotta, like, I'm supposed to heat up. I'm like, dude, I don't know if, when they start measuring cholesterol, but you gotta chill out uh, on the sausage. But good gifts come from a good God, but good gifts from a good God always come to not so good people. That when we say, give us this day our daily bread, then we're recognizing that something happened in the Garden of Eden. That something happened when sin came into the picture and that we have no right to the good things around us. Because of the sin that we inherit and the sin that we actually perpetrate, we have no right to the good things around us. You had no right to a good breakfast in and of yourself. You have no right to the sunshine shining upon your face. You have no right to hearing the birds sing. You have no right to the breath in your lungs or the heartbeat in your chest. 
Good gifts from a good God poured out on not good people. Recently, I heard of a, and I won't give details, um, but someone who was in a meeting trying to plead their case as to why they are not, not guilty. It wasn't a courtroom, but they didn't do these things. They had done nothing wrong. And they stood up in front of this meeting and they said, uh, hey, I'm a, I'm a good Christian. And so I would never do anything like this. And it wasn't it was not a, like a serious charge or anything criminal. But I, I so desperately I wasn't in the meeting, but I was so desperately be like, well, good Christians know that they're not good. Good Christians know that they're not good. When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus say? Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Or the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, he's quoting, he's quoting I mean, a, a plethora of, of Psalm passages, Old Testament passages there in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 and probably some others that I don't have on the cusp of my mind right now. Uh, but he says, there's none good. There's no not one. And somehow we fall for the dupe that you're really not as bad as you are. And somehow that becomes the gospel that is preached. Either we preach it to ourselves or it shows up in pulpits that you're not that bad. You have the answers within and of yourself. You just need to wrap your head around this. You just need to realize your potential. You need some self-esteem coaching. But under the covers, so to speak, of the ask of God to give us this day our daily bread is the tacit recognition that I don't deserve my daily bread. That the very basics of this life, if God were pure justice and pure wrath, I would not have that. And neither would you. I don't know if y'all heard that. It was a pin drop somewhere. <laughs> but we have to disavow ourselves. If we're going to, and I promise, I'm going to, there's good stuff. But this is such a problem. It's such a problem. Because right here, on this point, you are not as good as you think you are. What's the famous, there's a quote by Spurgeon. Uh, and I'm going to butcher it because he was just such a wordsmith. But he, uh, he said, you know, uh, you know, somebody asked him, what do you do when someone speaks ill of you? Um, and uh, I can't, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do it justice. Uh, but what do you do when someone speaks ill of you? Well, I, I, I can't, I can't, they don't, they don't really know me as, I, I'm much worse than they know about. They don't know me as good as I know myself. I'm much worse than they could ever say. So don't get too upset. So when people give you a hard time and they say bad things about you, the, 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 the recognition we should have is like, I'm actually much worse than that. <laughs> this is the response of the Apostle Paul. Right? I am the chief of sinners. He's the, like the, the outside of the Lord Jesus, humanly speaking, the Apostle Paul is like some of the, we, we vision, vision has like the, the spiritual Superman cape of the New Testament. He's traveling around, preaching the gospel, planting churches, getting stoned, dragged out of town, goes back into town. He is shipwrecked and eventually he's, be, he's beheaded for the cause of Christ. And he's saying, I'm the worst. And it's right here. 
It's right here when you begin to say, I have transgressed the law of God. I have rebelled against the rule of God. I have gone against Him. I have served myself. Rather than serving other people, rather than worshiping God, I have sought my own way. So often. And right here is where gratitude is built in your life. Right here is where gratitude is built in your life. Because if you don't get this point, you're going to start believing that you're entitled to the things that are in your life. That you're entitled for your daily bread. That you're entitled for a good job. That you're entitled for a good spouse and a good family with good kids and a nice house. That you're entitled to know Jesus. And you're entitled to have this and to have that and to do this and to do that. Entitlement arises when you believe that you are better than you are. But the message of the gospel is that you are spiritually, morally bankrupt of all goodness. And that's your problem. I don't, I don't know if anybody's told you that lately. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? The old Romans road, you know, you know everybody loves, the, I don't know if you, if you learned the Romans road, that's how I learned growing up how to share the gospel. But Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, go on to chapter five, etc. But, but too often we gloss over we put the shiny veneer over sin and we say, oh, sin, it's, you know, it's not that bad. Every I'm, the, I'm a human. I'm a human. And so I have weaknesses and failures. And, and we've already corrupted our understanding of humanity that sin is not part and parcel to being a human. Sin is part and parcel to being a sinner. The first people were created without sin, innocent, in good relationship with God. Jesus, the true man, the second Adam, came sinless. That's the picture of humanity. Sin, faltering, failure, that is not, that is foreign to what we were made to be. And I'm I'm hammering this because I know the world out there is going to tell you something different. It's going to say there's, there's no possible way that there might be a problem with you. It has to be somewhere else. You're not being appreciated. And you're not being valued. Or you're not being uh, affirmed or accepted or tolerated in the culture and the context in which you find ourself, yourself. And so it must be that spot's problem. Whereas the Christian message says, well, maybe we should look at our heart first. And so when we say, give us this day our daily bread, this is a recognition that we are sinners in need of God's grace in every, in the most mundane of things, that we are completely dependent. We are completely dependent on God for any and all good. Even the stuff that you worked, you say, "Well, well, pastor, I've worked blood, sweat, Tears to have what I have. I worked for 30 years and I have this retirement and now I have this house and I have wife and kids and maybe grandkids and I, I worked hard for all of this. Good. Good. Praise God. Who kept your heart beating? Who gave you longevity? Who helped you help you find a job that you were able to work that long and now you have that in retirement? Who, who provided you a godly and helpful spouse? 
Just because God chooses to use second causes doesn't mean that every good gift doesn't come from him. Because scripture says every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the father of lights in whom there is no shadow or variation of change. And so if there is a good thing in your life, which there is because you're all sitting here. Could we could we take a moment and count the many blessings of this solitary moment of your day? So far as I see, your hearts are beating. I pray that doesn't change in the next few minutes. Or, or for a long time. One day it will, but okay. You, all your lungs are working. Your brains are working. Your eyes are working. I assume your ears are mostly working. That you're, you're there. You're physically present. You're healthy enough to get out of bed and to get here. You're able to drive in a car that costs thousands of dollars. Somehow being able to procure that. You've arrived here. And, the, the, and, we haven't, and you, you've eaten something, I assume. Some of you. Many of you. You have air conditioning lights over your heads. Cushy, cushy, padded pews. Maybe they don't feel so cushy, cushy, but they're cushy, cushy if there were no pads, I promise you. And those are just temporal, physical, good things that you are receiving. But you are in the house of God amongst the people of God. You've heard the praises of the true and living God ring in your ears. Fire up your the synapses and the whatever else is going on in your brain and hopefully alivening a spiritual heart within you. You've heard the word of God read and you're hearing the word of God preached. You're having spiritual blessings heaped upon you. But if you don't recognize that you need it, go about your way. Okay. So we're totally dependent. And all these things came to you today in this moment from the good God. You've deserved none of them. None of them. Much less have we earned Jesus Christ, the bread of life. So not only are we dependent upon God, but we come and Jesus says, not only should you have this posture of dependence before God, recognizing that every good gift from the most boring loaf of bread to the highest blessings of your life, they come from the good God poured into your life. But we also must take a position not only of dependence, but one of debt. Forgive our debts as we forgive. We have forgiven our debtors. Jesus tells a wonderfully illustrative, illustrative, I don't know, uh, parable in chapter 18 of Matthew uh, and I just want to read some of that. The par- it's called the parable of the unforgiving servant. All right. So this is Matthew 18, uh, beginning at verse 21. And I'll, I don't know how much of this I'll read. But uh, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him as many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, let me just pause so you get a grasp of the magnitude of this servant's debt. This is not the text that we're preaching on. I just want you to get it. Um, That one talent 
was worth roughly, according to the little ESV, this is just an ESV footnote, maybe you have it in your Bible too, uh, but it was worth approximately 20 years labor, one talent. And somehow this servant has racked up 10,000 talent debt. That's 200, just math, I was terrible at it, but I can do this when I've got a calculator on my phone. It's two, I literally did that, 200,000 years worth of labor. So this is an impossible debt. Impossible debt. Outrageous. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant felt, which would probably still not pay the debt. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a incredibly small number compared to 10,000 talents. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What is the debt that we have accrued? Some of you might carry a mortgage. Some of you might carry car payments. Some of you maybe have credit cards. Maybe you're thinking, I'm debt-free, Dave Ramsey for the win. The debt that is in view here is the debt of sin. And coupled with the first point, if you don't understand the weightiness of sin against a holy God, then you're not going to understand the magnitude of the forgiveness that God gives you in Jesus. If sin is a light thing to you, the cross of Christ will be a light thing to you. If sin is light to you, salvation will seem light to you. But if you see sin as big, heavy, hairy, ugly, nasty, damning, and every one of us have piled it up, heap upon heap upon heap, inwardly and outwardly, in ways that only the God of heaven knows. And yet when Jesus stretches out his hands on Golgotha's tree on the cross and he says, it is finished. All of your sins are paid for. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a savior. When we pray saying, forgive us our debts. Do you see how 
understanding our dependence leads to gratitude. Understanding the weight of sin debt that we owe to God, the justice of God, should make us cherish Jesus even more. That's what always strikes me. It strikes me about the Lord's Supper as we have this visible image that the Lord has given to us, instituted for us, that we would see the bread and the wine, and we would see the payment of Christ, and that He would die for me. Because I'm the worst guy I know. I know what happens in here. I know what happens in here. It doesn't mean that God hasn't done a work of grace in me. It doesn't mean that I'm not the same or that I'm the same. It, mean, it, doesn't, it means that I'm not the same by God's grace. But when we posture ourselves and we understand the gospel and the sin that we've committed against God, and we understand the cost that it cost Jesus, then we, it transforms how we interact with other people. If you're, if you're here this morning and you are wrestling with this, you have been sinned against and you have been wronged. The thing I want to say to you, one, is that vengeance is the Lord's. All will give an account for what they do in the body. Everyone will give an account for what they have said, what they have done, what they have not done, where they have failed. Everyone will give an account. And if there's someone who has sinned against you and they have not sought shelter through repentance and faith in Jesus, then they stand condemned. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and we trust the hand of the just God. But what that means is that it is not for you to bear. Vengeance, anger, revenge, bitterness are antithetical to the gospel. And so if that's where you are, someone has wounded you and sinned greatly against you. I am not making light of that. But the fabric of the gospel that Jesus forgives Sinners, God's grace towards sinful people should point you toward forgiveness because God has so greatly forgiven you. And when we refuse to extend forgiveness and we rather harbor bitterness and anger, we're betraying the Lord who loves us. And we're telling a lie about the gospel. Dependence. Debt, how else, what else should color our prayer? Finally, deliverance. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That word evil, it really should be translated. I I argue, I think it should be translated the evil one. It has a definite article, the in Greek and There's a specificity attributed to it. That's not just deliver me from evil circumstances, but deliver me from the evil one who prowls around like a lion seeking whom he may, may devour. We need to be delivered from Satan and sin and the demonic impulses and, and works that are happening in this world. We need deliverance from things exterior to us, but we also need deliverance from what happens within us. 
Lead us not into temptation. A temptation, if, you were to, if, if you've been in our James study, we saw this in James chapter 1, that temptation is something that often springs up within us. Going back to point one, that you're not as good as you want to say you are. And that even for Christians, there is the continued presence of indwelling sin. It still pulls us away, that our flesh still pulls us away from affection to Jesus. And we need God's help. We need to be delivered from sin, Satan, the world, the flesh. We need deliverance. We need salvation. And maybe this is where you are right now. You're saying, Jacob, you've been dropping the hammer all sermon. I felt like this would be a happy one. Where we would talk about different sorts of bread. Like you're going to Subway and you're saying, what bread do you like? You know, like, just the bread. I just want the bread. And they have rosemary crunchies and Parmesan stuffed. I don't know what they do over there. But you have heard a message that should challenge any self-inflated spiritual ego that you have. Hopefully we've taken a giant pin to that and popped that balloon. And that if you are not in Christ, then you stand condemned today. If you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are under the wrath of God. There's only two statuses. You can either be in Christ Alive, approved, and accepted, or you can be in Adam, in your sin, and a a child of wrath, just like the rest in Ephesians chapter 1. There's no middle ground. And the question is, where are you? Do you see your dependence, even for the ordinary things that you don't deserve? And by the way, when you begin to see the ordinary things that come into your life, as good gifts from a good God, then all of a sudden you wake up and you worship for all that the Lord pours out on you. Have you seen the depth of debt that you owe? If you're curious, right, go through, just read uh, Exodus chapter 20. Read the Ten Commandments. And say, here's God's moral standard set before you. Then read what Jesus does with them in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Where he says, not only is it exterior behavior, but it's interior motives and affections that are legislated by the law of God. And then begin to see, you can check down the list saying, I broke that, and I broke that, and I broke that, and I broke that. And you're just heaping up debt to the one who holds standard, holds judgment over the world. And then you should cry here at the end, deliver us, deliver me, both from sin, Satan and the world, the flesh, but deliver me from the wrath of God. Deliver me from the fires of hell. Deliver me from eternity separated from you, God, deliver me. This should be the cry of faith today. Deliver us. Do not look to us. Do not deal with us as our sins deserve, but deal with us according to Christ's sacrifice. That's the Christian's hope. That he would remove our sins from us and give us the righteousness of Jesus. And this is the exchange that happens at the cross. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What does that mean? It means that Jesus got your sin and you get his righteousness. 
He who knew no sin became sin. That Christ took your sin. He took the wrath of sin due to you. He took the judgment and the punishment due for your sins. And it was poured out upon him at the cross. And all who find shelter under the cross of Christ in faith find new life. If you cry out to Christ and say, save me, he saves you. Don't look at my sins. Look at the blood of Jesus that washes me clean. And we get his righteousness. God not only removes the penalty of our sin, but he gives us the righteousness of Jesus. That Jesus' perfections, Jesus' perfect law abiding, that he kept the moral and he kept the law of God in total without breaking it. That he has right relationship with God and that he has followed perfectly the will of God. That is credited to your account by faith. This is the message of the gospel. You're justified. You're counted righteous before God by faith alone in Christ alone. I got one amen out of that. You want to know what the alternative is? Not that I'm fishing for your amens. You can stuff them in your back pocket. That's fine too. I don't mean that derogatory. I don't. Anyways. But that's the gospel. The alternative is, is that Jesus takes your sin away somehow. And that it's up to you now to find a righteous path to earn righteousness from God. Through your action. Through your obedience. Through your observation of the sacraments of the church. Some churches say. Whereas the biblical gospel is, you're set right because you believe in Jesus. You're set right with God because you believe in Jesus. And we hope for the forgiveness that he gives us in Christ's name. Let me pray for us before we transition into the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, we thank you that we pray as those who are dependent as those who are debtors, as those who need deliverance. We thank you, O Lord, that you meet our every need and more. Every good gift comes from you. And the most precious gift being your son, Jesus. We thank you, O Lord, that you have not dealt with us as our sins deserve. But as that master had mercy, and compassion on a servant. You have mercy and compassion on us. Seen most vividly. And the blood shed for us by our Lord Jesus. And the Lord, we ask now that you would deliver us. For some here or who hear this, we ask, O oh God, that You would deliver them from the grip of sin and Satan and the world, the flesh, for the first time. That they would know the strong and mighty hand of our Savior to deliver them and save them from whatever their circumstances, whatever false gods that they have bound themselves to, whatever addictions that plague them, whatever sin that has 
heaped up condemnation upon them? Would they know that there's true deliverance in Christ and Christ alone? For others that are running the race with you, I pray, God, that you would protect us from the evil one. That you would rescue us from temptation where our indwelling sin would be lit that you would turn our eyes to you, that Jesus, you would be most precious. And we pray this in your name. Amen.